All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's start with a question this morning. What does it mean to be a man or woman of God? You can answer that if you want to, or you can treat it as a rhetorical question. But what does it mean to be a man or woman of God? That's a term that's used throughout the Bible. I believe I counted 80 times where that phrase is used in the Old and New Testament. Almost all of it is the Old Testament. There's only two uses of that phrase in the New Testament. But it's used in the Bible to describe people like Moses and David, Elijah and Elisha the prophets, a few others. It's a phrase that's used to describe a man who was wholly committed to serving the Lord all the way up to his death. That's the way it's used throughout the scriptures. It's only used, I mentioned, twice in the New Testament. And both of those times, Paul uses it in reference to Timothy. I thought that was interesting. So one of those times is in our passage this morning. So I wanted to, as we look at this passage, my, my goal and my purpose is to really look at what does it mean to be a man or a woman of God. And Paul's going to lay out three things as he's talking to Timothy here that I believe will help us to understand in our own lives. What does it mean for us to be a man or a woman of God? Let me go ahead and read the passage. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 11 through 16 this morning. We're getting really close. Um, I'm going to be starting our next series here, working on some of the details in the next uh, this week here, because I've finished up all the study in 1 Timothy. So we've only got a couple more weeks. Um, I think two after this, if I remember correctly. So we're getting real close to the end of our, our letter here. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But, um, he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession, good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man may see or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I'm going to break this down into three parts. It's weird that every passage breaks down into three, three points usually. So we don't honestly try to do that. I think whoever discovered that years ago, some seminary professor, went, you know, every sermon has an introduction, a conclusion, and three main points. I don't think he just made that up. I think he just found in his own study that everything he preached fell into three pieces. So, same thing with this this morning. We're going to look at it in three different pieces. The first point that we find here in Paul's passage to Timothy is that the man or woman of God is somebody who flees worldly things and pursues spiritual things. Paul begins by calling on Timothy. He noticed there in the very first part of the verse, he says, but flee from these things. These things primarily refers to a number of things that take place in the book as a whole, but primarily false teaching. Go back up into verse 4. You're going to see that Paul actually says this. He, and he's talking about false teachers here, anybody who advocates a different doctrine from verse 3, he says he's conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise evil strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, causes constant friction between men of depraved minds. And so Paul 
has that partly in mind and he tells Timothy, flee those things. So when, he, when you see that phrase there in the beginning of verse 11, he's specifically referring to what he just challenged Timothy on, the false teaching of the false teachers. In verses 6 through 10, he actually warned them about the love of money. Look at some of those. He says in verse 10, or verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And he's talking primarily there about the false teachers who are desiring to get rich using their feigned godliness for gain, he says. And so he says, the love of money in verse 10 is the root of all sorts, is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then immediately he says, flee from these things, Timothy. So he calls on Timothy to flee these worldly things, the, the false teaching, the trappings of riches and wealth. So he right out of the gate tells Timothy, flee. Notice that he doesn't just tell him to avoid these things. That's a pretty powerful word, flee, isn't it? Gives you this interesting word picture. The Lord used it when he told Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt because of the threats against Jesus, their young infant child. Jesus used it when he called on the Pharisees. He called them vipers and he told them to flee from the wrath of God. Jesus used it again when describing the destruction of Jerusalem in the Olivet Discourse when he says that they're to flee to the mountains for safety. We see that actually in the book of Revelation, a period where God sends Israel out into the wilderness to be protected. They're to flee when they see those things coming. It's a word that literally means to run away from danger. Now the examples that I just gave you are all physical dangers, but the scriptures also use this same language to re- refer to fleeing from spiritual dangers as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 18, just listen to this. Flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits, he commits outside the body, but immorality, that's an immorality against your own body. So he says, flee from immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says, Now flee, Timothy, from youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. It's very similar to the passage we're looking at today. So we find in the scriptures, this word flee, run, run away from danger, used both with physical danger and even spiritual dangers. Does that bring a picture to your mind at all? Is there an example, maybe a story from the Old Testament where somebody did just that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Joseph. Joseph. And what does Joseph do? Potiphar's wife. He's a trusted man, you know, in front of the Pharaoh and the king. And what happens? The wife, come here, Joseph. (laughs) You know, so she grabs his cloak, and what does he do? He doesn't just run away. He leaves his cloak, runs away. We we say runs away naked. He might have had an undergarment on. We don't know, or he may have been just in the buff. But he didn't care that he left his clothes behind. Why? He understood the danger. That's the picture that we see here. Flee, but you know what? It's not just enough to flee those things. And Paul doesn't stop there with Timothy because you notice he goes on and he tells him, flee from these things, you man of God. And then he tells him to do something else and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Did you catch that? It isn't just, well, avoid those things, Timothy. Get away from those things. He doesn't just tell him run away from the dangers. He tells him to run towards something. And that's actually that word to pursue. That's the picture that you get. To pursue something. 
So it's not enough just to flee worldly things. Paul calls on Timothy to pursue spiritual things. Each one of these things, think about this, righteousness. Well, that's rightness, doing the right things. Goodness, that's a trait of God, doing good. In fact, we're going to see that, I think it's next week. Doing good with our finances and things, that's what we're called on doing. Faith, we know what that is. It's a trust, primarily a trust in the Lord. Love, another attribute of God. How we're supposed to treat each other. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is what? Love God and then love people, right? We're to pursue that. What about perseverance? You know, the scriptures, and we're going to talk about this here today, the the scriptures are filled with challenges and, and a calling to pursue, to play the long game, to finish the race. We're to pursue that. That's a spiritual thing. And then lastly, here he mentions gentleness. It's kind of interesting he mentions that one. All of these things are gifts of the Holy Spirit, are they not? These are the kind of things that each Christian should desire to pursue, to, to run towards. One of the principles in the Bible is that we're not just to put off sin, we're supposed to put on the new man. We're supposed to put on the behaviors and the things that Paul has just listed here. We just saw that Second Timothy chapter 2, he does, Paul says the same thing. Timothy... Flee from lust and pursue righteousness. And he repeats these very same things here. That's a biblical standard. That's what we're all called to. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 with me. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. Most of you probably know this passage. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Essentially what that means is we don't need the Old Testament law to regulate our behavior because we've got the Spirit living inside us. And these gifts, these, these things that the Holy Spirit gives to us are those spiritual traits. He says now, verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the old man, with its passions and its desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also then walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. In other words, we're supposed to live by the Spirit. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we're essentially supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of every believer. So what Paul challenges Timothy with here is not just fleeing from worldly things, but pursuing these spiritual things. Many of you know that I swam for years, and I was one of those swimmers who, um, I was a workhorse, and what I meant by that is, I wasn't the best swimmer on the team, I was a good swimmer. Um, swam sectionals every year, never, I made it to state, but just as an you know, alternate for a relay, that kind of thing, but um, I swam for almost 12 years, and I worked really hard at it. In fact, in the summers, I would um, oftentimes be at the pool for a good part of my day if I wasn't working as a lifeguard, but then during my um, four years of high school, I swam three workouts a day, which was unheard of. I would go to the morning practice, which was run by an by a, um, old army sergeant who did drills and stuff, and that was brutal. I did more work in that one hour with him than I did in the three hours, or I'm sorry, the two and a half hours after school. But then I would go to the varsity practice after school, and then I would stick around for the JV practice. So I had to work really hard to be able to be the swimmer that I was. And what's interesting is that I was a long-distance swimmer, so I wasn't a sprinter. But I was one of the faster guys when it came to sprinting the the distances of what's called 100 yards. So even though I wasn't um, the fastest at that, they always had me anchor 
the relay at the very last event of the whole of every meet. And so for four years, I swam the 200 freestyle, the 500 freestyle, and I anchored the last relay. There's only one time where I swam any other event in four years. And the reason they put me at the, as the anchor, it was for two reasons. One is, right before that was a 500 freestyle. So I literally would get out of the water after swimming the 500 freestyle and go get in line for the relay, and they needed to give me some kind of rest. You normally put your fastest guy at the end, and that was not me. I was probably maybe the third fastest, maybe the fourth out of the guys that were on that relay, you know. But they needed to give me my rest. But the other reason they did it was because I always performed best when I had to chase somebody down, and I loved that. Man, I, if, if, I could, if I could get up on that block, if I had a choice... Make us the fastest team in the water or put us just a couple of lengths back, not lengths, but body lengths back. That's the way I wanted to enter that water because I always performed best when I had somebody to chase. And there is nothing, there is no better feeling than watching yourself just gradually getting a little closer and you see their feet and then you see their waist and then you feel see their shoulders and you know, when you're breathing towards them, you know, and you know this is going to come down to barely out-touching that other person and having to hit that wall and turn around and look at the clock and to see that you made it by one-tenth of a second, you know. That where I always performed my best. And it didn't matter how exhausted I was, how my heart was still pounding from the 500 freestyle and thinking, I need more rest. If I saw that I was behind somebody and I had to pursue them, that's when I did my best. That's kind of the picture here. We're supposed to pursue. We're supposed to chase after. And so when Paul is describing to Timothy here, Timothy, as a man of God, flee those worldly things and pursue these spiritual things. We have to do the same way. That ought to be our defining characteristic. When people look at us, they ought to see us desiring to flee from those worldly things, to not be caught up and entrapped by them. And instead, they ought to look at us and see us pursuing spiritual things. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul wrote this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence only, but now so much more in my absence, he says this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's an odd state, state, statement, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about working to gain your salvation. He's saying that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Working out our salvation. Fleeing from the dangers and pursuing the spiritual things. That's how we grow in Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I've alluded to this before. Ephesians chapter 4. There's this great word picture that Paul uses to describe all of this. This idea of fleeing from some things and pursuing spiritual things. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22. Let's, let's start in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, 
That's fleeing from those worldly things, fleeing from that old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which, in the, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Do you get that picture? He's basically saying, take off those old nasty clothes, all those things of the world, and put on the new clothes, put on the new man. Pursue righteousness and goodness and faith in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing I think we see here when Paul is coming to the close of his letter here, and he's looking at Timothy, he refers to him as a man of God and somebody who would flee these worldly dangers and instead pursue these spiritual things. Let's move on. Second thing we see here is that the man or woman of God is somebody who lives in light of eternity. Somebody who lives in light of eternity. Look at verse 12. He says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called and you made the good good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There's two word pictures that Paul is going to use here in this verse. The first one, actually both of them, I'm sorry, um, are sports metaphors. We've seen the first one already in, I think it's chapter 1, verse 18, if I remember right, where Paul calls on Timothy to fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. It's a metaphor Paul uses in other places. In fact, he uses it of himself as well. One of the last things he says in his life, that were, or one of the last things he wrote um, before his uh, execution was that he had fought the good fight. So he loves this metaphor. Paul loved sports metaphors. He talked about beating the air as a boxer before and, and that, but... So he used it in in regard to his own life when he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. He says that in 2 Timothy. He also began his letter to Timothy here in uh, chapter 1, verse 18. But you remember, we did a a whole entire morning on just this concept of what it meant to fight the good fight. I just want to review the four points that we covered that morning. First one is that to fight the good fight, we need to keep faith and a good conscience. Keeping a good conscience and keeping the faith is critical to fighting the good fight. Look at um, chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to just touch these as we walk through. There's only four of them. But first, first Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He says, this, I command, or this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Keeping, and another way to translate that, since it's a participle, is by keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Timothy, if you want to fight the good fight, this is the way that you do it. You keep a good conscience, you keep the faith. Second thing we learned was that to fight the good fight, we need to discipline ourselves for godliness. Discipline ourselves for godliness. And we do this through the preaching and teaching of the word, is what we were told. Look at um, chapter 4, verse 11. He tells Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect the spiritual gift, which his was teaching and exhortation. Do not neglect those, that spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress, progress in what? His spiritual growth might be evident to all. Pay pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. 
For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. Fight the good fight, Timothy, and do it by preaching and teaching and absorbing yourself in the Word. The third thing we learned was to fight the good fight. We need to flee worldly wealth. We already touched on that. We just saw that in verses uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 6, where he told Timothy to flee these eternal things. The fourth thing we learned during that morning was that to fight the good fight, we need to guard biblical truth. We're going to talk about that in two weeks when we get to the very last two verses of this book where Paul reminds Timothy of his need to guard that which has been entrusted to him. That's part of fighting the good fight. So Paul uses this first metaphor here, fighting the good fight. He uses another metaphor. He extends it, actually. Extends this metaphor of fighting the good fight by adding another metaphor. And it's one of taking hold of the prize. Go back and look at what he says here. Verse 12, fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. In order to understand, I think, what Paul means here by taking hold of eternal life, I think it's going to help be helpful if you read a pretty sizable chunk of scripture from Philippians chapter 3. Turn there with me, if you will. What does it mean to take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called? Philippians chapter 3. It's a long passage, about 21 verses or so. But just read along as we do this. You may notice some of your translations may even put something along the lines of like a header on this, which is like a summary. What's this chapter about? The New American Standard says, The goal of life. The goal of life. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's Paul's goal in life, to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, that I may lay hold for that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He's talking about eternal life here. I don't know that I've laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, that's at the end, eternal life. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and in anything have this, you have the same attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. What have they obtained? Resurrection. 
eternal life. And he says, let us live according to what we have obtained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. Again, eternal life. From which we also, we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has given or even to subject all things to himself. What is Paul talking about here in chapter 3? He's talking about living in accordance to what he's already attained, which is eternal life. And so the man or woman of God is somebody who lives in light of eternal life. I was talking to Daryl Bell last night. Some of you know Daryl Bell. He's coached the FCA cross-country and track team for, I don't know, something like 112 years. Um, He's worked with coaches and students, and um, my own daughters have been impacted and challenged by him, as have the Ramirez's, and you guys even, I don't remember if you had been a part of that, but um, saw him at um, the Ramirez's party, and uh, there was an open seat, I think God put an open seat there next to him. My wife had sat down and left an open seat right there. And so I walked down. I said, this must be my seat because it's open. And I sat down and I asked him, I said, so how are you doing? Because he had a heart attack a while back or open heart surgery. And um, I had seen him not too long ago at, his, um, at Kayla's wedding. And he was doing much better, you know. So I was kind of expecting good news. And he first words out of his mouth, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I could just tell he was kind of hurting. Wow, what's going on? And for about six months now, he's been struggling with severe fatigue there are days he said I can't get up and function other days where I take three and four naps just to get through the day they don't know what's wrong so I think he saw a nurse practitioner that's somewhat holistic and functional in her approach to medicine and um, spent an hour and a half with him saying we're going to do a bunch of blood work and all kinds of stuff we're going to kind of get to the bottom of it um, so we, we talked about that but what was really interesting is he talked about how you know, hey if, if this is it I'm ready to see Jesus. I'm ready to go there. He's like, but if it's not, it's time to double down. And I thought, man, what a perspective. You know? He's like, if I've only got a week left, if I've only got a month left, if I've only got a year left or a couple of years left, it's not time to relax. It is time to double down. Because I'm going to see Christ. And as much as I'm ready to see Him, I'm going to double down. That's living in light of eternity. Paul tells Timothy here, take hold. What does that mean to take hold? It means to live in light of that. Grab onto it. And he says, you know, we're still living in this life, which means that even though we we know that's what awaits us, eternal life is something that is given to us as a gift because of our faith in Christ. We don't work for that. But we should be working because of that. And we should be living in light of that. Timothy had been called to eternal life as a result of his commitment to Jesus Christ. He ought to be living in light of that. So, that's what Paul charges him with. Just like Timothy, we've all been called to eternal life. That's what awaits us. Everyone in here who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has already been given eternal life. You don't need to work for that. However, that doesn't mean we sit on our laurels. It doesn't mean we just sit back. We double down. 
We ought to be pursuing those spiritual things. We ought to be living our lives as if we're living for that. We need to take hold of that. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that many in the church do that. I think they fall prey to what Timothy's already been challenged with. Living for those worldly things. Pursuing those worldly things. It's almost like, ah, I'm saved. Earl Rodmacher, president of Western Seminary, the guy that my first seminary class was done remote back in the day where it was done on videotape. It was a class in hermeneutics. And he had a phrase, getting saved and stuck. And it was that idea that, huh, we're just comfortable knowing we've got eternal life. But we don't live in light of it. We don't grow. We don't mature. We don't pursue these things that Paul's already challenged Timothy with. We just sort of, you know what, it's good enough. You know, in talking to Daryl last night, I thought about that and I think about it often. I want to be able to say a lot more to Christ when I die. I don't want to just say thanks for eternal life. Sorry. Daryl's not going to be satisfied just sort of walking into the kingdom and going, eh, thanks for eternal life. He wants to be able to go to Christ and say, I doubled down. You know, Paul, at the end of his life, you know, for him to be able to say, man, I, I, I know what's waiting for me now because I, I, I fought the fight. I finished that race. You know, Paul warned the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 that depending on how they build on the foundation of Christ, some of them will walk into the kingdom and everything they did will burn up. And Paul says, all they're going to have is their soul. Eternal life. But those who built properly on that foundation, that's where the rewards are. And we don't know what the... Daryl and Funny even said, "Ah, gold and silver, I'm not interested in that. It's not possessions. He nailed it because he said, the reward we'll have is our ministry and our service to Christ in heaven. I'm going to be touching on this in the next couple of weeks that... What we do here now prepares us for ministering to Christ in the future in eternal life. And Paul talks to Timothy about how we use our wealth today even to do that, by being generous. How we use what God has given us today because it builds on the foundation of Christ and lays a foundation for our eternal life. You want to talk about rewards and stuff? It isn't, ah, we get a big mansion, we get the gold and silver and the trinkets, you know. No. We're going to reign with Christ, those who are faithful will reign with Christ. Not everybody will reign with Christ in that regard. And so, Paul tells him, take hold of eternal life. Live today in light of that. And that's what we ought to be doing. And so a man or a woman of God, that's what we do today. We shouldn't just be satisfied barely squeaking in the door (laughs) to eternity. Sure, that'll be awesome. You know? But there's so much more. So we had to live in light of that. That was Paul's point from the passage we just read. He says, I may not have attained it quite yet, meaning I, I'm still here in the flesh, but it's mine to possess, and I'm going to live like it. Let's move on to the last thing that Paul challenges Timothy with. The man or woman of God is somebody who faithfully endures until the appearing of Christ. Look at verses 13 through 16 again. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord, or our Lord, Jesus Christ. I appreciate the way the NET translation translates this. It says, Obey this command without fault 
or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The command which Paul was referring to is avoid those worldly things, flee from those worldly things and pursue eternal things, and then fighting the good fight in light of eternal life. He says, obey those things without fault or without failure until you see Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the finish line. Paul charged Timothy with living these things out. He says, without stain or reproach. Ultimately, when you think about it, look at what he does. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Those are the only two that really matter. Think about it. The man of God or the woman of God understands that. They understand that I'm in this race and I'm pursuing this until I see him and ultimately I'll stand before God and Jesus Christ. Nobody else. How many of us get caught up in sort of living our Christian life based on trying to you know, look good in front of others without remembering that ultimately it matters when we stand before him? I shared before that the real proof of our faith and salvation isn't where we begin, but it's where we end. I am a firm believer in eternal security. We're told that nothing can take us out of Jesus Christ's hands, and I believe that that means we can't walk away if we're genuinely saved. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but I think the Bible declares pretty simply that if I did nothing to gain my salvation, I do nothing to keep my salvation. You know? But, that doesn't alleviate the tension that the scriptures are filled with the charge and the command to remain faithful until death or until you see Jesus Christ. I'm going to rattle off some of these for you. You can turn here with me if you want. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we what? Hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope, what? Firm until the end. It says we're of God's house if we hold firm our confidence and our boast all the way till the end. Jump down into verse 14 of the same chapter. For we have become partakers of Christ. Up oh, there's that nasty word if. For we have become partakers of Christ, genuine believers, saved individual believers, what? If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He's not saying you can lose your salvation there. He's saying the proof that you are partakers of Christ is where you end up, holding firm to the end. That's that's the proof. It's kind of like, you know, Dustin keeps telling us he's an architect. I've yet to see one of the buildings that he's had built. We know Dustin's an architect. Why? You can go see his plans that he's drawn. You can see the buildings that have been built. You know he's an architect, right? Not just because he claims it, right? He's going to die an architect, we think. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. These are Jesus' words. You will be hated by all because of my name. But then he throws this in. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. That is in the context, ultimately, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and being hated. And there are those who, eh, I'm not in this for the long haul. Jesus warned about that. Tells us in the Olivet Discourse. When things get really, really bad during the end times, he says many are going to walk away. That's going to be the way that the sheeps and the goats are weeded, weeded out. 
Only those who are genuine in their faith with Christ are still going to stand. Those who simply professed it with their lips are going to walk away. Hey, a little hot in here. A little bit too much fire. So Jesus says it's only those who endure till the end. Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at two more. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. He's talking here to churches in that first century who are going to face some pretty serious persecution. Look at what he says to them. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful, what? Until death. till the end. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by what? The second death. What does that mean for those who don't overcome? For those who don't endure? For those who don't persevere? They will be overcome by the second death. Jump down to verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I have also received authority from my Father. And I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear and hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's, I think, a reference to what Paul says to Timothy, that we will reign with Christ. Those who prove faithful, who endure, will reign with Christ. This theme of enduring faithful to the end is repeated throughout the Scriptures. There's many more passages we could turn to. Um, Paul wrote this at the very end of our section today he will bring about at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and the lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to him the honor and eternal dominion forever what Paul basically does there is he's, a, he's referencing if you will the coming of Christ it is assured Christ will return and so one way or the other folks one way or the other, we'll face Christ. And we'll either see Him when He appears, and we'll face Him, or we'll meet Him in death. But either way, according to what we see this morning, as Paul is encouraging Timothy here, the man or woman of God who endures until the appearing of Christ. So, a third thing for what it means to be a man or woman of God is that we'll endure. We'll persevere. Regardless of the challenges we face, we will persevere. Jesus tells us. That's the proof of our salvation. Again, I'm a firm believer in eternal security. But a lot of people, Jesus tells us this when he separates the sheep and the goats. The goats look at him and say, but we did all these great things in your name, Jesus. We had our church sticker on. It's not what we say. It's how we live, but how we endure and the proof it's interesting that Paul in one place mentions wanting to live his life in a way that he doesn't disqualify himself, but then he gets to the end of his life and he says, I've arrived. I ran the course. I finished the race. Tremendous amount of confidence. I don't think he ever doubted his salvation, but he lived in, in a way that said, I'm going to live in a way that proves I'm going to make it to the end. I'm going to run according to the rules because I want to cross that finish line. And that is ultimately the proof of salvation. I can't tell. I can look at you. You can look at me and I can say they, they're saved. They look like they're saved. They behave like they're saved. But I'm sure plenty of people said that about people like Jay Bell. Not Jay Bell. Um, Rob Bell. You know, 
pastors a church, leads a movement, and then abandons some core theological doctrines, and now you even wonder whether the guy is saved anymore because he's not playing according to the rules. He's not running the race anymore. And, um, I, I can't judge his salvation, but boy, I'd be a little fearful. The scriptures lay that out for us. The goal is to make it to the end faithful. And so the man or woman of God is somebody who will endure until the appearing of Christ. You may have noticed that Paul even inserts a little statement here about Jesus Christ that says, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Paul is calling on Jesus, or Paul, Paul is calling on Timothy to follow Jesus' example of endurance. Because Jesus didn't just endure 30 plus years of ministry, including some pretty rough years in the last three, but he endured all the way up to having spikes driven in his hands and feet, being put on the cross, suffering death. That's an example of endurance. That's the example we're called to. Elsewhere we're told, you know, you haven't, you haven't really uh, struggled enough with your sin until you face death. That's a pretty strong statement. That you've not struggled enough unless you face death like Christ has. And that's not saying that we all need to suffer that. It's simply saying that sometimes... That's what it requires, is that we endure even through the most difficult of circumstances and for many, even enduring through that persecution and death because that's what Christ did. That's the standard. We may not like it. None of us ever want to have to face something like that, do we? We went through our eschatology series and we talked about you know, the timing of the rapture. It's not comfortable to think, well, what if Jesus doesn't come before the tribulation period? None of us want to face that. But that's not what determines what's right or what's wrong, is it? Because the example is Jesus Christ. Every one of the first century um, apostles, except for Judas, were martyred. Oh, except for John. John was boiled in oil and then stuck on an island. I don't know if that's really better than death. But every one of them was martyred for their faith. They endured to the end. That's the example we've been given. That's the standard we've been given. And so that's what's required of a man or woman of God is that we endure to the end. Pretty challenging passage this morning. I'm going to read just Paul's words from the end of 2 Timothy to kind of put this into context for us. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, I've already alluded to it, we've mentioned it multiple times as we've studied, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Some of the last words that were, Paul may have written other letters that didn't equate to Scripture. He may have sent out some others. We don't know. But the last letter we have written by the Apostle Paul, one of the last things that he says is telling on how he lived his life. Second Timothy chapter 4, jump down into verse 7. He says, verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Think about that as your own life. Paul is facing death. And he looks at that as an Old Testament sacrifice, a drink offering being poured out to Christ. That's pretty amazing. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. Remember how many times he's warned Timothy here about those who had abandoned the faith, who had strayed from the faith? Paul says, I've I've finished. I've kept the faith. And then he says this, in the future, that's eternal life. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. That idea of loved his appearing means that they were anticipating it, looking towards it, waiting for it, expecting it. 
So Paul says, this is what awaits me because I've lived my life that way.